Uh, it's my privilege to be opening the Word of God this morning, and I'm going to be working my way through the book of Habakkuk, and Lord willing, we'll get through this in the next six or seven weeks. And maybe you're sitting there and you heard Josh and you're thinking, Habakkuk? I don't even know if I've ever read Habakkuk, much less remember what it's about. I'm not even sure I know where that is in the Bible. But it is imminently relevant for us today. If you have wondered lately, you've thought this thought, how long is God going to let this nation continue to rebel against Him before He judges it? If you've thought that recently, well, that's exactly the question that Habakkuk asks God concerning the time that he lived in. So it's extremely practical and relevant for us. But before we get there, I just want to cover some introductory matters to help us understand the text better. I'm first going to just set up the context of the book, where it's at in the Bible, and then where it's at, where it happens in history. So first, the canonical setting, where it is at in the Bible. Habakkuk is one of what we typically call the minor prophets. Not because of the lack of importance, but because they're just smaller in length compared to Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. But in the Hebrew Bible, after the longer prophetic books of Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, there is the book of the twelve. It's one literary unit that encompasses the twelve minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Those are a literary unit in the Hebrew Bible. There's an organization to it. There's a discernible structure as you go from book to book. The first six books of the twelve, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah, they go into great detail on the covenant sins of Israel, the sins of the rest of the nations around them, indicting them, God indicts them for their sin. And the next three, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, after having indicted Israel and the nations, the prophets proclaim judgment upon the wicked nations, Israel, and then in Zephaniah, upon the entire world. And then the last three give future hope of restoration. So there's that discernible structure. You can keep that in mind even as you read through those. But as you read through the twelve, the minor prophets, Habakkuk, as one commentator puts it, is the apex of the crisis of punishment. For if Habakkuk was the last word, God is going to judge Israel with a nation more wicked than itself, and then he's going to wipe this nation off the face of the earth. If Habakkuk, if Habakkuk is the last word, it leaves the world devastated and the people of God without hope. But as you quickly get into the book of Zephaniah, you see that even in the midst of punishment upon the whole world, God will preserve a remnant for Himself. But as we get into Habakkuk, the emphasis is not on the details of their sins, what they have done wrong. Those have already been outlined in the previous detail, particularly Micah on the sins of Judah. But rather, Habakkuk is just a pronouncement of judgment upon these sins. 
upon Judah for her sins. So that's where it falls in the Bible. That's where it's set in the 12, the minor prophets. But now I want to set the historical setting. When did all of this take place? And it's hard to pick a starting point because you could pick anywhere in the book of Kings to start to lead up to this. But for the sake of actually getting into the text, we're going to start imminently close. We're going to start in the year 640 BC or 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 22, you don't have to turn there. We don't have time to read great portions of it, so you can just listen as I uh, summarize a bunch of it. But in 2 Kings 22 or 640 BC, an eight-year-old boy by the name of Josiah became king in Israel. And while I'm informing you of Josiah's life and everything that happened, keep in mind that Habakkuk was probably around the same age as Josiah, give or take 10 or 15 years. But Josiah became king on the heels of 57 years of extreme wickedness. His father only reigned two years, and he apparently was such an intolerant Intolerable king, his own servant, household servants put him to death. But Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, reigned for 55 years, and it was a 55-year reign of terror. He led the nations into every form of idolatry and wickedness. The scriptures say that he committed abominations, doing things that were more wicked than the Assyrians. He even sacrificed his own children to idols. The Scriptures also say that he shed so much innocent blood, he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Fifty-five years of this. Two more years of another wicked ruler. And then Josiah comes to power in 640 as an eight-year-old. And 18 years into his reign he decides to make major changes. You see, Jerusalem and Israel, they were kind of subjugated to Assyria, but Assyria began to uh, be battle back and forth with Babylon. And so Assyria's power faded in Jerusalem, and so Josiah, he felt that he could do what he wanted with political reform and religious reform. Those are two, two things that are tied very closely together. So he begins by repairing the temple throwing out the Assyrian gods, distancing Israel from Assyria. And upon doing so, the book of the law is found. And it's read to Josiah. Josiah is convicted. He believes the word that he is hearing as the word of God. He reforms the worship of Israel to reflect what God had prescribed in his law. He created a central centralized place of worship, got rid of all the idols in the nation. He even reinstituted the Passover for the whole nation to observe. And it seems like the nation is back on track. That God's going to bless them. But in the midst of describing the reforms of Josiah in 2 Kings 23, Yahweh declares that he will not turn from his anger, that he will destroy Judah for her great sins. 
Even though Josiah has turned the nation around, God is still going to destroy it for its sins. And in the very next paragraph, it describes Josiah's death in battle. Josiah thought he was going to lead off Pharaoh Necho from aiding the Syrians against Babylon. But he was struck down in this battle. And Judah was made to serve Egypt once again. And after he died, eventually Pharaoh Necho installed Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, to power in Jerusalem. But he turned out to be a wicked leader, just like his grandfather and great-grandfather. The scriptures also say of him, he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood from one end to the other. And Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of Habakkuk, Jeremiah describes Jehoiakim as an unjust, brutal man who just wants to enlarge his palace. Jeremiah 22, 13-19. And it is most likely that it is during this reign of this wicked Jehoiakim that Habakkuk writes this book. So if you're looking at 2 Kings, Habakkuk writes during the white spaces between chapter 23 and 24, during the 12-year reign of wicked Jehoiakim, when much of the idolatry and the rampant wickedness and violence was present that was present before Josiah's reforms. Josiah, in other words, Josiah's reforms lasted maybe 10 years. And the nation went right back to its rampant wickedness. But that brings us to the book of Habakkuk. And if you're not already there, you can turn there now. Just back a couple books before Matthew if you need some direction getting there. But Habakkuk 1, beginning in verse 1, says the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violent, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now before we get into our outline, there's just a couple more introductory matters. And if you're ready to get into the text, that's good because we don't really know anything about Habakkuk, so there's not a lot of time we can spend on talking about him. But Habakkuk is the author of this book. We don't know anything else about him, no other details about him. He is mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. No other biographical information is mentioned about him. He is mentioned in the apocryphal book, which is not Scripture, the apocryphal book of Bell and the Dragon. He is mentioned as being carried by an angel to take food to Daniel in the lion's den. Other than that, there's, he's not mentioned in any Hebrew texts. And the name Habakkuk is either the name of an Assyrian garden flower, or it means an embracer, a hugger. And Martin Luther maybe took a bit too much liberty in exegeting Habakkuk's name, but he says this, and I quote, 
He embraces His people and takes them to His arms. That is, He comforts them and holds them, lifts them up as one embraces a weeping child or person to quiet it with the assurance that if God will, it shall be better soon. End quote. Now that might be a bit of a stretch to exegete all of that from Habakkuk's name, but Martin Luther was no doubt studying Habakkuk, and that's what Habakkuk intended to do, to encourage people based on the sinful culture that he lived in, that if God willed, things would be better soon. What we do know about Habakkuk from this book is that he is a man of great faith who took what he knew about God, that he's holy, just, good, the judge and savior of the world, took what he knew about God and what he saw happening all around him, the rampant injustice, and he tried to make sense of how the two could be true. How could a just God let so much rampant sin go unpunished? And he reasoned from faith to understand the difficult questions of life. He believed in order that he might understand. In faith, not in doubt, he tried to make sense of the world. And he turned to God for such answers, often crying out in distress over the great sin that he saw. He was a perplexed man who knew Yahweh was just, yet he was not judging according to his word as he promised at least not in the time frame that Habakkuk thought that God should act. As I mentioned, we know Habakkuk was a contemporary of Jeremiah, which we'll refer to throughout the, the sermons just to fill in some of the details. We know Habakkuk was a prophet. It says it right there. Few are actually designated as such in the headings of the books, but, pro, but Habakkuk is here. And it's also possible that Habakkuk was one of the Levite singers in the temple. If you look over at chapter 3, chapter 3 is really a psalm that Habakkuk wrote. There's several, you see that indicator over there, Selah, 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 throughout. And at the end of it, it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. And so... Habakkuk was possibly one of the temple singers, but at least he was a songwriter who wrote a psalm to be used in corporate worship in Israel. But as a prophet, it says that he saw an oracle. Oracle refers to the entirety of the message that he heard. And this word for oracle stems from the phrase to lift one's voice. It refers in the context to a pronouncement, a message. It can also be understood as a burden or a load, which is carried by a beast or a person. And thus, this message was a burden to Habakkuk. It was a message, a pronouncement from the Lord, which was a burden to him, for him to share with others. He was burdened with this message and he had to share it. Now, if it is a verbal pronouncement, a message that he received, why doesn't it say that he heard it instead of that he saw it. It says an oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. This verb means to see, behold something, but it's an Aramaic loan word, and it especially is associated with prophetic visions. And when it's used in the context of prophetic perception, it refers to a revelation of divine word. It indicates the prophet had a vision where he received a divine word 
or divine message to proclaim to a particular audience. So Habakkuk saw, perceived, he had a vision where he received divine revelation. And it isn't a stretch to say that in the prophets, God often directly tells the prophets exactly what to say. There are many occasions where they say, thus says the Lord, and then there's quotation marks in your Bible. God spoke directly to them. This is what you shall declare in my name. And this here just gives us a peek into the fact that such an occasion was often accompanied with a vision. They saw someone who gave them the message. And if you were here in our study of 1 Samuel, this is exactly what happened to Samuel in 1 Samuel 3. He heard, but he was also visited by Yahweh in bodily form, who told him everything that was about to happen and to go tell it to Eli. And so I don't think it's beyond reason to think many times the second person of the Trinity, the Word incarnate, the Word of the Lord appeared to the prophets and gave them a message directly. They saw, but they also heard. And this seems to be the case at the beginning of the book of Jonah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, very similar language. It was certainly the case with Samuel. And I could go on, but suffice it to say, Habakkuk saw in a vision what his message was. I don't think he perceived divine revelation with his eyes, but he saw someone who gave him the message to speak. Now let's get into the text of Habakkuk, where we don't quite get to this oracle yet that God told Habakkuk, because first Habakkuk asks God a question. We're going to look at verses 2 to 4 today with the time that we have left. And what we're going to see is a man of faith who's making, trying to make sense of the fact that God is not judging the rampant sin around him. He's wrestling with how a holy God can let such sin go unpunished when he has promised to hold his covenant people accountable. And through this struggle, we're going to see three principles that we can emulate so as to remain faithful during similar times when sin is rampant and there is no fear of God among the people. So three principles that we can emulate in Habakkuk here. Number one, persevere in prayer even when you are perplexed. Persevere in prayer even when you are perplexed. Number two, detest sin even when it is abounding. And number three, look to God even when you are hopeless. One, one point for each one of these verses. But let's look at point number one in verse two. Persevere in prayer even when you are perplexed. Habakkuk 1 verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? How long is actually at the front of the Hebrew text for emphasis. How long? This is typical of the beginning of a, what's called a lament. Many translations use the word complaint. If you have an ESV Bible, it has the heading right above verse 2 that says Habakkuk's complaint. I don't necessarily like that word complaint because Habakkuk is not complaining as we 21st century Americans understand complaining. 
He isn't grumbling against God. He isn't casting dispersions or blame upon God for wrongdoing. He isn't blaming God. He is lamenting his current situation. And in faith, he is crying out to God that justice be done. What's so amazing about Scripture is that it gives voice to our feelings, especially in poetry. And the poets, of which Habakkuk is one, gives expression to many of our feelings and attitudes. But in the outpouring of feelings and attitudes, the biblical poets always express an attitude of trust and faith in God amidst those emotional outcries. It's never this unbridled venting against God that's often promoted today. It is emotional for sure, but it's restrained appropriately recognizing that we are lowly creatures appealing to God Most High who sits on the throne in the heavens. So complaint is not totally inaccurate. Habakkuk is crying out to God in prayer because he is rightfully so displeased with the state of Judah from top to bottom, everywhere he looks. But I think lament is a better word to use. He is lamenting the current state of affairs He is convinced that Yahweh is still ruling on high, but in faith, he's seeking to understand how such a holy God could put up with such injustice. He's crying out to God in faith that his faith be vindicated by God judging the injustice that he sees. He says, How long, O Lord? How long, O Yahweh? It is the covenant name of of God, the one who told Moses, I am that I am, which is a reference to his aseity, his self-existence. He depends on no one else for existence. This implies he's all-powerful, that he's holy, that he's perfect, and a whole host of other attributes. Habakkuk knows this God, and that is why he is perplexed about how history is unfolding But that's also why he is crying out to him. Because he believes in faith that Yahweh is the only one to turn to. He's the only one that can deal with this. But he says, How long, O Yahweh, shall I cry for help and you not hear? The verb translated there as cry for help is in a particular form that elevates the intensity One dictionary renders it to mean this, to utter a successive series of screams. This is the same word used of Jonah crying out from the belly of the fish. How intense do you think your cry would be if you were swallowed by a giant fish? How intense would you cry out from the belly of that fish? Or eight of the 22 uses of this verb are found in the book of Job. Think of Job's suffering, the intensity of his suffering and the intensity of his crying out to God. That's the intensity of Habakkuk's prayers, his crying out to God. So Habakkuk's current circumstance, amidst the great injustice of his day, he was crying out to God intensely. He was wailing to God for help. And justice never came. So he asks God here, written in Scripture, How long must I cry to you and you not hear? And this doesn't mean that God 
literally doesn't hear Habakkuk's cries for help. He's expressing his feelings here. God is the great I am, the omnipresent one who knows all and hears all. What the prophet means by this is he is not hearing and acting. The verb for hear is parallel to that final verb at the end of verse 2, save. Those, those lines are parallel. You can see that. How long shall I cry for help or cry to you violence and you will not hear and you will not save. They're parallel. So Habakkuk is not questioning God's ability to hear his cry, but is listening and acting upon it. He wants to know when God is going to act. But the poetry here is masterful and beautiful and graphic. The imagery is Habakkuk uttering a successive line of intense cries to God. But God doesn't hear. He doesn't do anything. And so the intensity increases. Habakkuk's faith remains. Habakkuk doesn't turn anywhere else. He continues to intensely cry out to God. And when we get to the second half of the verse, the how long part is implied as being repeated. How long, O Yahweh, shall I cry to you violence and you not save? The verb for cry in this line is a different verb altogether. And this verb isn't emphasizing intensity, but it's emphasizing repetition. In its imperfect form, it means to continue over and over and over and over again. How long must I continue to cry out to you, O Yahweh? There's a perseverance in prayer here. The faithful continues to cry out to God even when God doesn't seem to be answering even when he's perplexed about the world around him, he continues to turn to God and cry out to God for help. And when we read this book, where we have God's answer immediately following, you can look down, you can read it right there in verse 5. We have to remember Habakkuk repetitively and intensely cried out to Yahweh for some time, years maybe before he got an answer. But did he stop? Did he give up on crying out to Yahweh for justice to be done? No. In fact, it was the opposite. The intensity increased. The reps continued. And he says, how long must I continue to cry to you? Again, Habakkuk is directly addressing his prayers to God. He is turning to the one to whom he knows can deal with the problem at hand. His prayers are intentionally directed to Yahweh. And the content of Habakkuk's continual prayer to God, at least for the sake of poetic brevity, is violence. Violence is a noun which denotes physical force. In some passages, it denotes physical force. Others, it refers to extreme wickedness. It can even take on the meaning of bloodshed, murder. So Habakkuk has seen horrendous wickedness, constant murder. And he cries out to God that such abuse and violence be dealt with and the oppressed saved. Over and over and over again, Habakkuk cries out to God. 
but he doesn't get an answer. But he continues to pray until we see written in text, until he gets an answer. So what do we learn from Habakkuk here? What do we do living in a society of rampant wickedness? We persevere in prayer even when we're perplexed that God doesn't judge. We are living in a similar age to Habakkuk where violence and bloodshed is a matter of pride. It's the right of every woman, many argue, to destroy the life in the womb. This violence is everywhere. And it's heartbreaking. And it's perplexing as to how God could continue to let it happen. What are we to do? We are to continue to cry out to God intensely that justice would be done. We continue to cry out for His judgment to come upon those who continue to promote such violence. And we continue to preach God's Word that it might change hearts, resulting in a larger change. But we continue to cry out to God in faith, knowing that one day He will bring judgment. But we live in a world not too dissimilar to Habakkuk. If we are to remain faithful, we continue to look to God in prayer, continually crying out to Him to bring justice. So that's the first thing we learn from Habakkuk. Persevere in prayer even when perplexed. And second, verse 3, detest sin even when it is abounding. Look at verse 3. Habakkuk says, Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Why? There is another typical way to begin a lament. But here it also functions to imply that Habakkuk knows Yahweh could do something, but he isn't. He's crying out to God, why don't you do something about this? One commentator, Thomas Renz, says, and I quote, Habakkuk does not allow for the possibility that Yahweh looks on because he is powerless to do anything about the situation. For Yahweh to countenance evil is in some way to endorse it. Hence the question, why? Habakkuk knows Yahweh is omnipotent and he wants to know why God continues to allow such wickedness to prosper. Why does Yahweh continue to make me see iniquity? Habakkuk says. And that verb for you make me see iniquity, it's causative. He's recognizing God's the ultimate cause behind this. He says, why do you make me see it? And this verb is also in the imperfect, indicating repetition. It's a recurring sight. Why do you make me see this over and over and over again? Over and over and over, Habakkuk sees this violence, this bloodshed. But what is it that Habakkuk is repetitively exposed to that distresses him? The text there says iniquity. This is often refers to sin or injustice in general, but it can also refer to disasters, deception, even the worship of idolatry. But it's a very broad term. So what is Habakkuk witnessing? And as I mentioned, none of those sins are outlined here. 
They're outlined in previous prophets, in particular Micah and Jeremiah. So just to give you a picture of what Habakkuk is seeing here, I want to share some of what Micah and Jeremiah declared. And Micah uh, prophesied over a hundred years before Habakkuk, but he elaborates on the wickedness in the land then, which it just, the, the prophets give the picture that it just got worse over time. But in Micah chapter 2, it begins with a woe to those who oppress the lower class by taking their property, fields, houses, and their inheritance. So the ruling class, they just took whatever they wanted from the lower class. Think of Jezebel killing and taking that vineyard that Ahab wanted. In chapter 3, Micah prophesies against the leadership who continue to lie to the people. The prophets and the priests, they continue to lie to the people. Micah says they cry peace concerning this or war concerning this. They took bribes and distorted justice. They deceived the people, Micah says, telling them that God was happy with them when clearly they were involved in all kinds of idolatry. And they pointed to to their prosperity as a sign of God's favor. And they told everyone, look, you're just fine in your sin. We're prosperous. God must be happy with us. Jeremiah, who's closer to Habakkuk, offers a similar picture. In Jeremiah 11, God says Judah has broken his covenant, gone after other gods to worship them, doing shameful and vile things at the altars of Baal which included all manner of sexual immorality. And in Jeremiah 12, Jeremiah has a very similar complaint or lament to Yahweh concerning the prosperity of the wicked. Listen to this. It's very similar in Jeremiah 12, 1 and 2. Jeremiah says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my cause before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root, they grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. And then in the next chapter, Jeremiah 13, God describes Judah's sin as a great pride. They refuse to hear the words of Yahweh, the king of the universe, and instead they follow after their own hearts. They went after other gods. They followed after their own desires, their own hearts. Whatever their heart said to do, they did. Moreover, in Jeremiah, there are a bunch of false prophets telling the people of Judah that God's not going to punish them. They're doing just fine to follow after their hearts, worshiping whatever they like. And then Yahweh describes the prophets propagating and promoting the deception of their own minds. The social elites, the prophets and the priests... They had deceived themselves concerning the truth and they were set on maintaining that deception by getting everybody else to agree, by deceiving everybody else. And it got to the point where the false prophets said, you know what? In order to keep this up, Jeremiah has to be silenced. These people speaking truth have to be silenced. So there were plots and attempts on Jeremiah's life. It's also during the time which Jehoiakim is said to have put Uriah the prophet to death for speaking the truth. So Jeremiah wasn't put to death, but Uriah the prophet was for speaking truth. 
This is, just to give you an idea of how wicked the time was, this is the only king. Jehoiakim was the only king wicked enough to put one of God's prophets to death. He filled Jerusalem with innocent blood from one end to the other, even the prophets of God. The wickedness of the people was great during this time. In fact, Habakkuk 1.4, which we'll get to, indicates law and order had nearly ceased in general. The functioning of society was coming to an end. The whole society was falling apart and unraveling at the seams due to unchecked sin. All while the social elites, the priests and the prophets, deceived themselves and the people into thinking that their sin was acceptable before God. That he was pleased with them and there would be no judgment. And there were dissenting voices, but those voices were stopped. Jeremiah thrown into a pit to shut him up. The social elites propagated deceptions, suppressed the truth. They oppressed the poor and tried to convince everyone that God was happy with them just the way that they were. While there was rampant sexual immorality and idolatry everywhere, violence everywhere, God was near in their mouth, but far from their hearts. And the constant sight, this is what was ever before Habakkuk, and the constant sight of such sin continued to make Habakkuk sick. He continued to say, why do you idly look at wrong? Why do you continue to make me see this? This word for Wrong when it's in conjunction with the above word for iniquity. There's actually this cause and effect. Iniquity is the cause. Wrong is the effect. But there's also this chiastic structure in the verse. The verse literally reads, I see iniquity and wrong you look upon. I see iniquity and wrong you look upon. And Habakkuk organizes the grammar this way so as to put iniquity and wrong in between him and God. Habakkuk's point is that he's looking at this and he knows God is looking at all of this as well. The cause and effect they both see from one end to the other. And if the last verse revealed that Habakkuk knew that God was all-powerful, the one to turn to in prayer, this reveals that Habakkuk knows God is omniscient. He knows and he sees all these things, and yet he doesn't act. They're both looking at this iniquity and this wrong. Habakkuk would presumptuously do something if he could, but he can't. He knows God can, but God isn't doing anything. But Habakkuk goes on to describe the depravity before him. He says, destruction and violence are before me. Destruction and violence, these two words together became an expression meaning death and destruction. Jeremiah uses this phrase twice. Jeremiah 6, 7 says, As a well keeps its water fresh, so she, that is Jerusalem, keeps fresh her evil. Violence and destruction are heard within her. Sickness and wounds are ever before me. So, Jeremiah gets graphic there, sickness and wounds, death, decay. Again, he uses this phrase in Jeremiah 20, verse 8. He says, For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. 
For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. This was when Jeremiah was particularly being persecuted for speaking the truth. So Jeremiah and Habakkuk living at the same time, witnessing the same kind of evils where there was death and destruction all over the place. Yet the people flourished. Certain people did. So when I describe death and destruction, you shouldn't think of a war zone like Ukraine. War had not come to Jerusalem yet. It was a time of prosperity. Rather, it was like America, where there is apparent prosperity, but there are sins that result in death and destruction of people's souls, and those things abound. Violence, iniquity, oppression, destruction, according to one commentator, are strong words that contain moral and spiritual overtones. They depict a society that is characterized by malicious wickedness, deceitful iniquity, both moral and spiritual, oppressive behavior towards others that result in general spiritual and ethical havoc. End quote. These things are happening right before Habakkuk's eyes. And he cries out to God and asks why these things must continue to persist unchecked. But he continues with his graphic description. Strife and contention arise. And these are legal terms. Contention designates domestic disputes. And it occurs almost exclusively among the Proverbs. In the, in the book of Proverbs, this is the same word that refers to a contentious wife in Proverbs. It is a curse to her, to her husband who is into, and she's intolerable. So you have this idea of individual domestic cases, possibly indicating divisions in the home. But strife and contention, they arise. They continue to rise up before God. He continues with this imagery of just repetition over and over and over again. This continues to rise up. Individual personal sin happening everywhere for the eye to see. And Habakkuk knows these things arise. They go up before the very eyes of God. He sees them. They're before his eyes. And yet he's doing nothing about it. Habakkuk describes a culture of death not too dissimilar from ours. One where people are bent on getting what they want, not caring about who they have to murder to get it. So what do we learn from Habakkuk here as a man of faith? How should the faithful live in such a sin-saturated, death-obsessed culture? Well, I think we can learn from Habakkuk that he didn't become cynical and he didn't become indifferent to it. He didn't become cynical and start talking about how everyone, everyone deserved what they were getting. Even these poor, oppressed citizens, they deserve what they get. Those who had violence perpetrated against them, they deserve it. They're sinners. And that is true. We all deserve eternal punishment for our sins, but we don't glory in the punishment. We don't rejoice when people come under God's wrath. We rejoice that justice is done, but never that people suffer due to their sin. 
We don't become cynical. We continue to pray to God for justice for the oppressed and those who are caught up in the deception that God might open their eyes. For us, this is those caught up in the deception, the culture of death in our country, specifically regarding abortion. These babies, they've committed no sins in the flesh. They are the epitome of the helpless and the poor. And yet they are torn asunder and murdered for the purpose of continuing sinful pleasure. We pray for the violence to stop. For those caught up in the LGBTQ movement, we want those perpetrating the violence of carving up kids to stop. So many are deceived by the lies of Satan. They are enslaved to their sin. We shouldn't become cynical about their demise. But we also shouldn't become indifferent about the death and destruction either. To put it positively, year after year, as this continued for Habakkuk, prayer after prayer, Habakkuk continued to be bothered by the sin around him. As the violence and the sin became more prevalent, Habakkuk continued to be bothered by it. He continued to detest it. And as violence and sin became more prevalent, he still speaks of it here in graphic detail as a sick and decadent society, like a decaying corpse. And it's easy, if we aren't careful, to begin to be less and less affected by it. As we are saturated with it more and more, it's easy to become less and less affected by it. We have to guard against becoming indifferent to the sin-saturated culture around us. We have to be proactive about detesting sin even when it abounds. I mean, it's just a matter of fact that as we're subject to more and more things offend our sensibilities less and less, the more and more that we're exposed to it. I mean, we're reminded of this in Greeley, right? Every time our out-of-town family visits and somebody gets out of the car and they go, what is that smell? We don't even notice it. We've been here so long. It's just a natural occurrence to be less and less repulsed by sin the more and more that we're exposed to it. We need to be like Habakkuk here to continue to despise sin when it abounds, to continue to despise sin when we see it everywhere. Let it always offend your sensibilities. Let it always bother you and cause you to cry out to God, when are you going to judge this? How do we do that? How do we make sure that sin continues to offend us. Well, when our minds are saturated with Scripture and prayer, our minds breathe in the fresh air of who God is, His character, His holiness, whenever that is interrupted by the stench of sin, it offends our sensibilities. It's when our minds are saturated with the things of the world that they grow indifferent to this stench. So we have to make sure we keep our minds saturated with Scripture, ever studying God and being affected and wanting to fear Him, wanting to please Him and keeping Him ever in the forefront of our minds. So beloved, persevere in prayer even when you are perplexed. When you look around and God is not judging the wickedness, persevere in prayer. And continue to despise the stench of sin, even when it abounds. 
by keeping your nose in Scripture, your thoughts pure. And thirdly, when wickedness and violence abound, point number three, look to God even when you are hopeless. Look to God even when you are hopeless. Look at verse four. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. It is because wickedness abounds and goes unjudged by God that the law is paralyzed. The word paralyzed in the Hebrew text is actually at the front. It's so paralyzed is the law. This word for paralyzed literally means to be feeble, numb, or cold. So the idea is an appendage that is so cold it's paralyzed like a dead frostbitten foot. And one commentator says, The operation of God's law is seen as benumbed and ineffective, much like hands rendered useless by cold. And another commentator says, Habakkuk's thought is that Yahweh's failure to act and punish wrongdoing has crippled the law's effectiveness as a tool for justice in Judean society. So if there's no bite to the bark of the law, evildoers will figure that out pretty quickly and take advantage of the opportunity. I mean, what did we see happen when those few cities tried to defund the police, removing the bite from the law? Crime went through the roof. I mean, how much would you be able to deter one of those criminals in the act when there was no threat of the police? Hey, you, stop stealing that. That's against the law. When there's no police around to enforce it, the law becomes ineffective when there's no sword to enforce it. Habakkuk is saying that very thing. God, wickedness runs rampant and you idly stand by and you do not judge Therefore, the law is paralyzed. It's ineffective. One commentator notes that Habakkuk, he establishes the fact that the law alone is not the answer to the problem of overwhelming wickedness. Just having Old Testament laws in place doesn't create a utopian Christian society. The sinful hearts of men disregard the law of God, whether it is the law of the land or not. If, Lord willing, Roe versus Wade is overturned this month, which we pray for, it really isn't going to make much of a dent in the culture of death in our country. I don't know if you heard about this, but the state of California is already talking about how they can pay to bring anyone who wants an abortion to their state, all expenses paid, put them up in a hotel, fly them out. The state of California is going to pay for anyone who doesn't have access to an abortion to come get one in their state. The law isn't the solution to cold, dead hearts who love sin. The law is powerless to change their hearts. Habakkuk knew this. The law was paralyzed. It wasn't the solution to the problem. And that is precisely why he is praying. He needs a miracle. He needs God to intervene. His hope is in God. He continues by saying, and justice never goes forth. Justice is the word for decisions or judgments. The decisions being handed down by a court to go forth and punish. These judgments and decisions were not going forth. 
There was a perversion of the judicial system which led to a breakdown of good order and natural society. Judgments never go forth. Judicial decisions to punish crimes were not going forth. Thus, wickedness abounded. And Habakkuk further explains it by saying, the wicked surround the righteous. This word for surround is only used a few times in Scripture. In Judges 20.43, it's a military term used to refer to encircling the enemy so there's no escape. Habakkuk was praying for God to intervene because he was his only hope. And Habakkuk draws a contrast between these two groups, the guilty and the righteous. Righteous here is not so much of a legal reference, because we've all broken the law, but a moral one. Righteous refers to those who are faithful to God. They have faith in God and thus were justified before God by their faith. We primarily know this truth from Paul. Just shall live by faith, but you know where Paul learned it? Look at Habakkuk 2.4. Paul studied the Old Testament to bring this to us in the New Testament just to explain it to us. Habakkuk says, the end of verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. The just shall live by faith. So Habakkuk is saying that the believers are surrounded by wicked unbelievers who want to put them to death. Just as Uriah the prophet was put to death by Jehoiakim. Those who stood up and declared the truth, as Habakkuk is writing this, standing against the wickedness, were surrounded and put to death. Beloved, we aren't there yet. But if we follow the pattern of Scripture, we will be there. Scripture is linear. There is a beginning and an end. And yet there is this cycle that happens over and over and over and over again. The same cycle in the book of Judges, where the Word of God goes forth and there's a revival. And then there's a time where the people turn away and God punishes them. Happens over and over and over in history. Just study Rome. When it became a Christianized society, study the cities where the reformers taught. The word of God goes in, but years after, people despise it and they want to shut it up and cast it out. And those who stand up are put to death. The cultural elites who are deceiving and deceived will stop at nothing to silence the truth. And we aren't quite there, but it could be soon. I pray that there is a revival of God's Word being preached, of people being saved, turning the country back from the cliff. But that's not the pattern that Scripture reveals to us time and time again. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. That is what we should expect. And when that time comes, where is our hope? It's not in the justice system. It is in God alone. One more phrase, and we'll talk about what to do with this. It says, so justice goes forth perverted. When the wicked rule, justice is twisted, it's inverted. What they think is just is unjust, and what they think is unjust is actually just. They say it's unjust to keep a woman from killing the baby in her womb. It's just to let an eight-year-old decide what they want to be. When justice goes forth perverted, what do we do as Christians? When the law is paralyzed, there's no judgment to restrain sin. What hope is there? 
Well, what did Habakkuk do? He turned to the one to whom he knew was all-powerful and all-knowing. He, with increasing intensity and repetition, turned to God and cried out that he would bring justice. He knew there was no hope in the law. His only hope was in God. And so we do the same. Beloved, persevere in prayer even when we're perplexed by God's judgments, continue to despise sin, abstain from sin, even when it abounds, and turn to God even when it seems hopeless. For we know the end. We know the answer to Habakkuk's question, why God's not judging. We know from Romans 1 that this is God's judgment. He has handed the nation over to their sin. We're going to talk more about that next week. So, beloved, pray, abstain from sin, and hope in God. And as New Testament Christians, I can add to you, evangelize and disciple. Go forth proclaiming the hope of forgiveness of sins. That is the only hope of change in our society. If God brings a revival in our country, through the changing of hearts by the proclamation of the gospel. So persevere in prayer, abstain from sin, continue to loathe sin, hope in God, and preach the gospel being involved in the local church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a magnificent and majestic God who is good and does good, and we continue to trust in you even when our world continues to unravel when injustice is everywhere. Help us to continue to devote ourselves to prayer to you. Keep us from sin, Lord, and help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Amen.